You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's talk to a professional investor now. Steve Wyatt, Chief Investment Strategist for B. Okay, Financial. Steve, you're in Oklahoma, isn't that right? In Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's Tulsa, correct. Oklahoma. So let me just, I'm going to assume that you've got an opinion on oil. You've got WTI crude oil at $102 a barrel. What are the smart people in the oil biz that you talk to, what are they saying about where they think oil is going? You know, it's interesting here. Uh, look, BOK Financial is an energy bank. We're one of the larger yep. uh, banks in the energy business. And frankly, uh, not just in Oklahoma, but in Texas as well. We've got kind of a love-hate relationship with oil <laughs> prices. Uh, we don't like it as consumers when gasoline prices are high, just like everybody else. But so much of our economy is driven by the energy business, employment, personal incomes, uh, a lot of people with uh, royalties that uh, as oil prices go up, uh, personal incomes are rising in this uh, in this part of the uh, in this part of the country. Uh, we're still, uh, I would say, constructive on the energy business. There's a lot of moving parts there. There's a lot of things uh, outside of uh, outside of our control. When you start thinking about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and how OPEC is handling some of this, uh, and then you've got some regulatory uh, issues. Uh, I'm going to say issues in Washington that. Uh, almost ironically, if you look at the uh, performance of the energy markets, the more restrictive the uh, policies have been, the better the performance of the uh, energy equities and the price of oil. But to the degree that we see uh, ongoing demand for uh, energy, both oil and natural gas, uh, we're constructive. We're still constructive does, on the business. Does it make sense to you, Steve, that the U.S. would go all the way over to Saudi Arabia and ask them to pump more oil rather than just taking a little trip down to Oklahoma and Texas and making it easier for our folks to pull our own natural resources out of the ground? So uh, one of the hard parts of our job is we try to be as apolitical as possible when we're uh, when we're answering questions like this. But <laughs> I didn't I say the just, president. I said America. Yeah, yeah just in general. Uh, as we think about how we move forward uh, from an energy policy standpoint, and nobody's pushing back on the fact that the direction that we're going is toward more green energy. But as we sit here today, 
Uh, it is hard to understand why the uh, administration would find it better to go to OPEC or uh, Venezuela or uh, uh, countries uh, to ask them to produce more oil when that is a resource that we have domestically. We're the largest producer of oil in the, in the world. We've got a uh, an industry that has that that has uh, you know built out and put us in a position where. We could uh, we could be energy independent if that's what we wanted to do. I understand there's uh, competing uh, thoughts around the direction that we should be going, or really more around the timing of how quickly we should be moving forward. But yes, it's hard to understand why we're not engaging our domestic energy business at a different right. level than what it seems we are. Hey, Steve, you know what I've heard from folks that do follow the energy markets globally, they say. You know, the U.S. producers, the shale producers who have been had such tremendous growth over the last 20 years, uh, they've been told by their equity holders, by their bond holders, maybe even mm. by their commercial lenders, mm. discipline, do not drill more. Return that cash to shareholders and creditors. Is that part of the issue as well? It certainly is. And, and you have to look at how, again, just go to how the industry is actually performing uh, since that shift, when it was uh, you know drill baby drill, yeah. uh, it has been better from an economic standpoint for the holders of, uh, of equity energy equities. Uh, it's been better for the uh, debt holders of those energy companies. Energy makes up a pretty large portion of the high yield index, and yeah. in past periods, uh, the energy sector has been responsible for uh, a lot of the problems in the high yield market. That's just not the case. Now, again, working for a financial company that is in that business, uh, it does not hurt our credit profile when we see oil prices um, and natural gas prices as high as they are. All right. Talk to us about Oklahoma State football. What's the outlook for this coming <laughs> year, Steve? Uh, I have to look. I went to Oklahoma State. I played on the tennis team there. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, the, when I was at Oklahoma State, though, to tell you just how long ago that was, Jimmy Johnson was our head football coach when wow. I was at State playing tennis. Um, look, we've done a fabulous job of being relevant for the last 15 years. I think as a as a longtime Oklahoma State fan, uh, it's a lesson in expectational management. You never let your expectations get away from you on the high side. <laughs> but we've certainly done a good job in the last 15 years or so of being relevant in D1 football. Absolutely. Oklahoma State Cowboys had some good stuff there. Uh, Steve Wyatt, Chief Investment Strategist for BOK Financial. We were going to talk like broad markets, but I just wanted to talk to him about energy, oil, and what those folks down there Well, and that's in. their business. It's their business in Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, they've been quite disciplined. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, let's talk technology. I'm looking at the, you know, the S&P, we're down almost, almost 20% year to date. But when you look at the tech-heavy NASDAQ, that's down almost 30% year to date. And you think about the NASDAQ tech stocks, they've 
really led this market since a great financial crisis, but certainly underperforming year to date this year. Let's get a little bit of a preview because we're going to have some tech earnings really in earnest start next week. We've got uh, Netflix after the close tonight. Ivana Delevska, founder and chief investment officer of Spear Invest, joins us. Ivana, again, the underperformance of tech this year. Um, what's your view of the tech space here? Is there still is this still a core part of people's portfolios? Should it be? Well, I believe it should, and I believe this major pullback presents a really good, attractive, uh, really attractive entry point. If you look at tech, <clears throat> the underperformance with the Nasdaq being down 30%, if you look at the big innovators in the space, they're down significantly more than that. So within our coverage universe, companies that have delivered uh, on earnings and had solid outlooks are still down 40%. Some companies that had some hiccups are down 70 and you have somewhere like the business model is in question that are down 80, 90 percent. So we think the sweet spot is to look into uh, this area of, of stocks that are actually performing pretty well. The fundamentals are strong, but you can still get these stocks cheaper 50 percent compared to what you could have gotten a year ago. How else do you divide the technology sector other than, you know, innovators um, or by sort of executing on business strategy in terms of, you know, the products they make or the services they provide? So we, uh, we focus on industrial technology. The way we look at technology more broadly is either consumer-driven names or industrial or enterprise-driven uh, companies. So in the last tech cycle, we saw a lot of in the innovation in the consumer space where you had uh, between streaming, social media, those were really the big companies that drove the, that drove the tech cycle. Going forward, we think industrial and enterprise technology will be the big driver of the, of the next cycle. Uh, we think a lot of the innovation in tech has been around data, how to use data, how to store it in the cloud, how to secure it well, and then how to use it and use processes like AI. Um, so we think we're just at the cusp of um, where we can start using some of these technologies into mainstream businesses or traditional businesses like autos, aerospace, and there is a real potential to transform this entire end market. So on that end, Ivana, a lot of folks, when they, they're talking about the future, the next three to five years of where investors should really think about the tech stack, they say cybersecurity. How do you think about cybersecurity? What, what's your view on that space, and, and how do you think is the best way to play it? So we're really excited about cybersecurity. It's the uh, most, it's the largest theme within, uh, within our portfolio. We have a publicly listed ETF, uh, Spear Alpha, with the ticker SPRX, and cybersecurity is one of the largest themes within that, uh, that, uh, that portfolio. We love the space for several, several reasons. One of them is as architectures have changed and data is no longer centralized, people are using either multiple devices or they're using data that's stored at the cloud or at multiple clouds. So this change in architecture requires completely different cybersecurity solutions than you would have uh, needed several years ago. So there are several, the space is pretty fragmented. There are several different areas that we like and we focus on that have over 20% um, growth of just the, the end market. 
endpoint security is one of them. Here we like companies like CrowdStrike. Another area is securing workloads to the cloud and within the cloud. Here a name is Zscaler. And then for people that want to play a more platform approach, Palo Alto Networks uh, is, is a good way to play, where they play both on the endpoint um, and the traditional uh, firewall, um, firewall product. What about AI? Um, it's something we hear so much about and, you know, investors put so much faith in it. Obviously, eventually the machines are going to turn against us and then you'll feel guilty <laughs> about all the money you made. But is it a good place to go into right now? Well, yeah. So AI is very interesting because it's been a theme for us over the past few years, but we really didn't have any significant investments and as there weren't any ways to play it at scale. And over the past year, We've seen a lot of developments where AI is becoming at the core of many processes. So even if, back to cybersecurity, even if you look at cybersecurity, a lot of the new products are AI-based. So CrowdStrike products are AI and machine learning-based. Zscaler's products, same thing. So AI is really gaining mainstream adoption. And this is just for running like uh, processes that you wouldn't necessarily be able to even do manually, right? Uh, this uh, algorithms can pick up on anomalies by just by training training the model. So we think AI is going to gain adoption to even more mainstream, like autonomous driving. We still believe that's uh, several years away because it is a pretty complex problem. But we do see AI as gaining pretty uh, pretty broad adoption. Ivana, just real quick, thirty seconds. Uh, Bloomberg broke a story yesterday that Apple may. Uh, slow some hiring uh, in certain businesses, and that we've seen that from other companies. Next year. We've seen that from other companies. Do you get a sense that Silicon Valley is kind of gearing up for a recession? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this point, we are at a at, at a point where recession is almost a foregone conclusion. Um, we are, we track a lot of industrial data points, and, and things really became really really turned even since uh, since March. We started seeing the trucking market. Uh, soften, consumer discretionary soften, and that's really now just been uh, affecting right. the broader uh, the broader market. So things have just spread to like manufacturing, yep. things have spread to technology. So we're going to see this from everybody. Microsoft right. also said that they're going to slow hiring. Okay. Media, same thing. They're slowing hiring. All right, Ivana, thank you so much for joining us. Ivana Delevska, founder and chief investment officer of Spear Invest, getting a update on all things technology. I want to check in with Liz McCormick. She's chief correspondent, global macro markets for Bloomberg News, and a proud uh, bachelor's and MBA graduate from the State University of New Jersey. That would be Rutgers. Uh, Liz, some smart people tell me I need to pay attention to this yield curve, this two-year, ten-year thing, which I think is inverted. Is that something you worry about? Is that something that you and the smart people in the credit markets think about? Well, it seems like, and go are you, um, it seems like definitely, you know, the yield curve, when it gets inverted, it always is kind of in, in the focus, right? Um, because, you know, historically, and, you know, a lot of the research was done on the broad curve, three-month rates versus 10-year, which isn't inverted yet. But the two-year, 10-year, like you said, drives a lot of focus. It, it builds on these recession fears because inverting curves have been linked to recession. So, yeah, I don't think you could ignore it, whether you might want to or not. But yeah, it's kind of adding to, you know, a lot of the comments we're seeing that the Fed might tighten us into a recession. Tighten us into a recession, but we've got about 
I think a week and a half till, or no, wait, no, seven days. I'm sorry, right? Today's Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Seven, eight days until the Federal Reserve, next Federal Reserve meeting. Liz, there's this big debate about 75 or 100 at the moment. How much more of a difference does 100 really make relative to 75? As we know, Governor Chris Waller, uh, I think it was last week that Mike McKee interviewed him, said 75 is still a lot. Do we really need that extra 25? Right. And I thought that was an interesting point he made, like, kind of in a way, 75 to 100, what does it matter? I mean, I think it's more psychological because I think he's right. Obviously, 75 and two in a row, you know, they just did 75 in June, which was the huge move they haven't been hadn't done since 94. I think he's right. I mean, I think it's it would just kind of 100 bips would just kind of slap the market like we are so all in on fighting inflation so the fed is saying not that people don't think they're doing that now but um i think you know when the bank of canada did 100 which some people were joking kind of greased the reels for the fed but i I do think that you know the pricing is getting more like 75 is looking like the thing so now 100 would be a little surprised so the fed doesn't like to surprise people so i it seems like people are leaning back to 75. What's the dollar telling us, Liz? I'm looking at the DXY index. It's as high as it's been in, you know, since like 20 years ago. Um, I can't hear a bear case for the dollar out there. How do you and, and some of the smart folks out there that you talk to, how are you thinking about that U.S. dollar? Well, you know, the dollar has been a real headache for many nations, you know, like especially emerging economies, which anytime the Fed is aggressively tightening, even if they're trying to keep up, you know, it, it, there's a negative knock on to them and they've seen their currencies really weaken. even forget developed economies, look at the euro, which is, you know, rising today, but, you know, recently yep. went through parity. Um, so a lot of these countries which are trying to combat inflation, weaker currencies creates import inflation. So it's a headache for them. Um, the Fed also, I mean, you know, strong dollar, you might think that's great for the U.S., but you know, the Fed to a point, it helps tighten financial conditions. So the Fed is trying to kind of get their calculus right of how much to lift rates. They got the QT going, you know, they want to tighten financial conditions and and they have, but the dollar, if it just keeps plowing on, that does speed things, you know, that that's into their models. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think the people long dollars are really happy, right? those who bought bonds in the U.S. from foreign countries have done well because, you know, let's just assume that even they're flat on their bonds, they convert those dollars back to their home currency. That's an advantage. So there's people who have won from that, but it is creating some kind of more fundamental headaches for some nations. Fundamental headaches for some nations, including the entire euro area, which brings Mm -hmm. us to the ECB. I believe they're meeting on Thursday. There are calls out here for not a 25 basis point hike, but a 50 basis point hike this week. Liz, can you explain to our international audience the significance of that 50? Well, yeah, you know, the ECB has been, you know, slower to move than such like the Fed as far as rates. Um, That's one thing that hurt the euro. But, you know, Christine Lagarde had laid out in the last meeting that, hey, kind of preset, we're going to raise rates. We were looking for about 25 basis points. Of course, she gave some caveats if data changes. But for them to kind of jump on this kind of more aggressive bandwagon, like seems to be leaked by at least some of the hawks at the ECB, you know, that would be a big move. I mean, number one, it would show that central bank is really, really, you know, focused on inflation, you know, more than maybe some people thought or, you know, willing to be more aggressive. Um, It also might help some of these disparities. You know, we've seen the euro rally today off those expectations, the market's pricing about a 
50-50 chance does the ECB do 25 or 50 basis points. Um, but it would kind of bring them more in line. Of course, the BOJ is a whole separate story, but with a lot of central banks that are tightening quite aggressively. You mentioned the BOJ, and I just wanted to get your thoughts there. I mean, we, we don't talk about Japan uh, that much relative to Europe these days, but w what can the BOJ do? What do you think? What are they signaling right now? Well, it, it seems like they're single, si signaling that they're going to keep their policies. They're, they've been on the dovish side. They're, they have yield curve control going on, which they're targeting the 10-year yield to not go above a quarter percentage point over there. And there was a lot of speculation for a while. Of course, the yen's been very weak that the BOJ may have to give this up. It's costing them too much to defend this as rates are rising all over. They have a weaker currency. But it seems like people are starting to say, well, it seems for now the Bank of Japan is going to leave this. You know, they've wanted inflation for a long, long time. Yep. Now they're getting some. So I think most economists think they'd be hard pressed to reverse course now, even though, the, you know, their most of their peers are tightening. Um, but, you know, they've been wanting this 2% inflation level. So, right. you know, to have a little bit of hot inflation is not so bad for them, at least it seems to be the consensus view. All right, good stuff. Liz McCormick, appreciate uh, getting your thoughts. As always, Liz McCormick, Chief Correspondent, Global Macro Markets uh, for Bloomberg News. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. All right, let's talk technology. I'm looking at the, you know, the S&P, we're down almost, almost 20% year to date. But when you look at the tech-heavy NASDAQ, that's down almost 30% year to date. And you think about the NASDAQ tech stocks, they've really led this market since a great financial crisis, but certainly underperforming year to date this year. Let's get a little bit of a preview because we're going to have some tech earnings really in earnest start next week. We've got uh, Netflix after the close tonight. Ivana Delevska, founder and chief investment officer of Spear Invest, joins us. Ivana, again, the underperformance of tech this year. Um, what's your view of the tech space here? Is there still Is this still a core part of people's portfolios? Should it be? Well, I believe it should, and I believe this major pullback presents a really good, attractive, uh, really attractive entry point. If you look at tech, <clears throat> the underperformance with the Nasdaq being down 30%, if you look at the big innovators in the space, they're down significantly more than that. So within our coverage universe, companies that have delivered uh, on earnings and had solid outlooks are still down 40%. Some companies that had some hiccups are down 70 and you have somewhere like the business model is in question that are down 80, 90 percent. So we think the sweet spot is to look into uh, this area of, of stocks that are actually performing pretty well. The fundamentals are strong, but you can still get these stocks cheaper 50 percent compared to what you could have gotten a year ago. How else do you divide the technology sector other than, you know, innovators um, or by sort of executing on business strategy in terms of, you know, the products they make or the services they provide? So we, uh, we focus on industrial technology. The way we look at technology more broadly is 
either consumer-driven names or industrial or enterprise-driven uh, companies. So in the last tech cycle, we saw a lot of in the innovation in the consumer space where you had uh, between streaming, social media, those were really the big companies that drove the, that drove the tech cycle. Going forward, we think industrial and enterprise technology will be the big driver of the, of the next cycle. Uh, we think a lot of the innovation in tech has been around data, how to use data, how to store it in the cloud, how to secure it well, and then how to use it and use processes like AI. Um, so we think we're just at the cusp of um, where we can start using some of these technologies into mainstream businesses or traditional businesses like autos, aerospace, and there is a real potential to transform this entire end market. So on that end, Ivana, a lot of folks, when they, they're talking about the future, the next three to five years of where investors should really think about the tech stack, they say cybersecurity. How do you think about cybersecurity? What, what's your view on that space, and, and how do you think is the best way to play it? So we're really excited about cybersecurity. It's the uh, most, it's the largest theme within uh, within our portfolio. We have a publicly listed ETF, uh, Spear Alpha, with the ticker SPRX, and cybersecurity is one of the largest themes within that uh, that uh, that portfolio. We love the space for several several reasons. One of them is as architectures have changed and data is no longer centralized. People are using either multiple devices or they're using data that's stored at the cloud or at multiple clouds. So this change in architecture requires completely different cybersecurity solutions than you would have uh, needed several years ago. So there are several, the space is pretty fragmented. There are several different areas that we like and we focus on that have over 20% um, growth of just the, the end market. Endpoint security is one of them. Here we like companies like CrowdStrike. Another area is securing workloads to the cloud and within the cloud. Here a name is Zscaler. And then for people that want to play a more platform approach, Palo Alto Networks uh, is, is a good way to play, where they play both on the endpoint um, and the traditional uh, firewall, um, firewall product. What about AI? Um, it's something we hear so much about and... You know, investors put so much faith in it. Obviously, eventually the machines are going to turn against us, and then you'll feel guilty <laughs> about all the money you made. But is it a good place to go into right now? Well, yes. Yeah. So AI is very interesting because it's been a theme for us over the past few years, but we really didn't have any significant investments, and as there weren't any ways to play it at scale. And over the past year, we've seen a lot of developments where AI is becoming at the core of many processes so even if, back to cybersecurity, even if you look at cybersecurity, a lot of the new products are ai based so crowdstrike products are ai and machine learning based zscaler's products same thing so ai is really gaining mainstream adoption and this is just for running like uh processes that you wouldn't necessarily be able to even do manually right uh these uh, algorithms can pick up on anomalies by just by training training the model. So we think AI is gonna gain adoption to even more mainstream like autonomous driving. We still believe that's uh, several years away because it is a pretty complex problem, but we do see AI as gaining pretty, uh, 
pretty broad adoption. Ivana, just real quick, 30 seconds. Uh, Bloomberg broke a story yesterday that Apple may uh, slow some hiring uh, in certain businesses. And that we've seen that from other companies. Next year. We've seen that from other companies. Do you get a sense that Silicon Valley is kind of gearing up for a recession? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this point, we are at a, at, at a point where recession is almost a foregone conclusion. Um, we, are, we track a lot of industrial data points, and, and things really became, really, really turned even since, uh, since March. We started seeing the trucking market uh, soften, consumer discretionary soften, and that's really now just been uh, affecting right. the, broader, uh, the broader market. So things have just spread to like manufacturing, yep. things have spread to technology. So we're going to see this from everybody. Microsoft right. also said that they're going to slow hiring. Okay. Media, same thing. They're slowing hiring. All right, Ivana, thank you so much for joining us. Ivana Delevska, founder and chief investment officer of Spear Invest, getting a update on all things technology. Shanali Basak joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio for our next guest. Shanali, why don't you bring in our next guest? We'll talk a little fintech. Yeah, it's perfect timing to have Max Levchin with us. He's the CEO of a firm. It's just the day after big bank earnings, guys, yep. when we have had some optimism on the consumer, but it left a lot of investors with a lot of worry that a lot of consumers around the country might be buying basic goods on credit given the inflationary crunch. And so, Max, you're a great person to talk to about the real state that the consumer is in. Uh, you know, your buy now, pay later craze has really become so popular in the last couple of years it's now taking different shapes how are you seeing the health of the consumer when inflation is just troubling them everywhere thank you for having me i think i would sort of summarize as, as still healthy but concerned we saw just over the fourth of july weekend really healthy spending so we you know 10x in concert tickets people are trying to get out COVID's over, they can't take it anymore. They gotta go see a concert. Airline purchases up 3X year on year. Bridal is really healthy. You know, it's a the year of weddings. People are finally getting married after all the postponements. And so there's a lot of good, what I would consider to be healthy spending. That said, just in our conversations with our consumers, surveys, we see that the vast majority are concerned about inflation. Their spending power is weakening fairly quickly. They're turning to buy now, pay later, and a firm in particular to stretch their dollar. And so you're right, there, there's some something to be worried about in the horizon, but for the moment, they're still uh, feeling pretty good. So, Max, uh, talk to us about, I'm looking at your stock down 75% year-to-date. I know a lot of the tech stocks have taken it on <laughs> the chin here, uh, fintech in particular. Kind of what do you tell your investors, your employees, uh, about kind of the future of the of the company, how you, the prospects for the company uh, as it relates to its stock price. No, I think most, if not, I hope almost all of my employees and certainly many of my investors join the Affirm mission because they believe in it and are very much concerned with the long term as opposed to the immediate. You know, we're, we're a pretty good company as far as uh, downed stocks are concerned, but uh, we've been executing really, really well. If you look at our quarterly earnings, we've only been public for just uh, over a year and a half. We continue to really perform and deliver all the numbers that we said we would. We continue to grow. We continue to maintain all the credit metrics that we've committed to. So 
I'm just very, very focused on delivering this long-term value to my shareholders, and I think my employees are very supportive of that. Are you concerned at all about accumulating debt when it comes to using this model? I mean, we were already talking about people switching more from using their debit cards to using their credit cards. Um, it's something that also has been a warning, um, I want to say, from some of uh, the major investors in the market at the moment. Is that something you're concerned about, leverage? Um, I am concerned about leverage, but I would argue that folks that are turning their eye to BNPL are concerned about the exact wrong thing. It's credit cards they should be worried about. There's the uh, buy now and pay later. Credit cards are buy now and pay forever. As soon as you swipe that card, you're going to start paying interest and interest on interest. Vast majority of Americans are revolving. A very, very small percentage of people who really understand what their credit card terms and conditions say. If you look at a firm, it's a much better alternative. We don't charge lead fees. We don't do deferred interest. We make sure that you cannot pay more than we showed you on the very first page when you're signing up for the transaction. And we approve or decline every single transaction a consumer asks for, which allows us to be much safer as a lender, but also allows consumers to be very clear as to when they're overextending themselves. So I'm a huge believer, obviously. I'm a little bit biased in mm -hmm. the buy now, model. But beyond that, I'm I'm a believer in it as a replacement for Max, credit cards. I'm really curious, what should you not buy now, pay later with? You know, there's a lot of stories about, uh, you know, a lot of consumers putting a, a lot of money on, on credit, on buy now, pay later, just kind of spreading out their financial lives in a significant way. And financiers are starting to get stretched under this inflationary environment. And I really believe that buy now, pay later is a better alternative to credit cards. I think if you're revolving and revolving forever, just because credit cards have been around but for a long time. But can you buy time, anything on it? You know, we are primarily offered at the integrated point of sale. So there are many things that are not yet integrated, plenty of places for us to go and partner with merchants. That said, we do believe that buy now, pay later is a better model and should be used ultimately for everything. Everywhere you think you should use your credit card, I think you should stop and think and switch to a firm. All right, Max, great stuff. We really appreciate you taking some time out of the day. Max Levchin, founder and CEO of the uh, company called Affirm. AFRM is the NASDAQ symbol. You can type into your uh, Bloomberg terminal to get a sense of what's going on there in the buy now, pay later space, which is a fascinating space, Shanali. Um, and I think investors are just trying to get a handle on what the risk profile is. Especially as interest rates start to rise, I think it's an interesting option for consumers. But there are a lot of questions. You know, in the past, there have been a lot of behaviors like you can and you can't do this with a firm, by the way. But buy on, buy now, pay later on credit. Right. And so you do see some double leveraging out there. But um, again, we're going to leave Max out of clear in this one. That's right. <laughs> They're trying to avoid Shanali, some of those behaviors. Shanali, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Shanali Bax that covers all things Wall Street for us, and we appreciate her. Uh, chiming in here with Max Levchin. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.